Let's dive in. We're in a season called Sound Mind, and here's maybe where the best place uh, to start is, and, and I believe this. I believe every ology ends in theology, right? I've made very, very clear first worship experience and last week. I am not a mental health expert. In no way am I trying to posture myself as that. Chris Gregory asked me all the time if I can help him with the rash that he's got, and I said, I'm not that kind of doctor. Like, that is not my doctoral expertise. I walk in the grain of theology, but here's what I believe. Every ology ends in theology. It will always boil down to what do I believe about God? What does God believe about me? And how does that impact my life and afterlife? That is the ultimate of ultimate, if you will, and then everything else in between we work through. And here's what I want you to know. I think this is important to know that Jesus wants you to have a sound mind. Let's start here. Luke 10, 25 through 27. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test. We have a lawyer questioning Jesus. He puts him on the stand and he says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And Jesus answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. What does Paul say? Paul says, the Lord has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound The Lord wants us to have a sound mind. This is important to the Lord. And so I would tell you this, if you are in here today and you battle with one of the topics that we're gonna talk about from anxiety, depression, suicidal thoughts, deconstruction, and on and on and on, um, you need to know, number one, that you're not alone, and number two, it's not something you need to be apologized for or worried about that that God doesn't understand you or scripture doesn't address you. In fact, uh, let me just tell you this, King David was depressed, Job was hopeless, Elijah was suicidal, I think there was another New Testament author who was as well, at least alludes to not wanting to live and go to be with Christ as gain, right? King Solomon hated life, Jeremiah wished he'd never been born. Listen, if the, if the Bible tells these people stories, we should talk about their stories as well, right? I mean, if the Bible, it's like, this is, this is the thing with, with mental health that's, that's challenging in the realm of theology. It's like, if you came in here with a broken foot or a cancer diagnosis, you wouldn't be apologizing for it. And be like, oh, sorry, I broke my foot. Oh, sorry, I was diagnosed with cancer. When you come in with anxiety, you're like, sorry, I have anxiety. Sorry, I, I battle with depression. Sorry, I have harmful thoughts about myself. My son, Zadok, he's in this place where he's constantly apologizing for things he doesn't need to apologize for. Like, Canaan and he will be fighting and bickering back and forth, and Canaan will pop him, and I'll say, Canaan, you can't hit your brother. Apologize to him, and Zadok will say, Bobby, I'm sorry you hit me. We're like, no, not you, him. You get the apology. So then Canaan will go up and be like, sorry that you were annoying me and taking my toys and ripped my Pokemon card and I accidentally hit you. And Zadok's like, I'm sorry you hit me, Bobby. And we're like, no, stop. You don't have to apologize for this. Hear me. If you came in here today concerned about a sermon season on mental health issues, you don't have to come into this place apologizing for it. 
You don't have to come in here apologizing or making excuses for yourself. Here's what I would say to you. Don't identify with it, but don't apologize for it. Let's get you healthy. Let's get you to a healthy theology and a healthy understanding of exactly what we're talking about. We're talking about anxiety today. And I was listening to a brilliant theologian, clinician, um, wonderful, wonderful mind that mixes the worlds of psychology and theology. And she made a statement I thought was so powerful. She said, anxiety keeps us alive. Like, we have to understand this, that anxiety keeps us alive. I'll give you an example. Um, If you're driving on 45 Highway and there's traffic for two and a half hours and there's some moron in a Raptor, like, why is it always the guys in a Raptor? Why is... Why is it always the raptors who's busting in and out of lanes and cutting people? There's like red lines for two hours and he's trying to make it three minutes ahead, right? Like, dude, it's like traffic as far as you can see and he's cutting people off and you're gripping the steering wheel and you're paying attention and you're not on your phone and you're you're starting to get nervous and you're watching all these brake lights happen and then he swerves into a lane, almost hits someone, they swerve into your lane and because you're focused and paying attention and anxious in this moment, you see it coming and you swerve off the road and it keeps you alive, right? That would be a moment of anxiety, general anxiety disorder. I read the diagnosis for it last week is this. It is when moments of anxiety become generalized anxiety in every moment of your life. In other words, it would be this. If you are sitting at home in the safety of your own home and you're not even in a car and when you hear cars on the street, all of a sudden your your palms get sweaty, your skin gets splotchy, your heart starts beating fast and you begin to well up with anxiety and you're not even on the road but you're worried about Raptor Guy. Right? Or that anxiety wells up in you that, that ha- is when a moment of anxiety becomes every moment of your life filled with that same anxiety. That's general anxiety disorder. I'll give you my own story with this. Uh, there was a time, and this is so funny, it happened first worship experience too. When I start talking about this, my heart starts beating. I start getting nervous, I start sweating a little bit, because it was a very real season that I walked through. I'm in staff prayer at the Ark in Conroe, and Lord forgive me, I, this was one of the rare moments I was totally checked out. I wasn't paying attention to anything. They were praying, to, I think I was thinking about my day, I had a lot going on, it was on Tuesday mornings at the beginning of the day, and so staff prayer is happening, and all of a sudden I hear Joy call on me, and she says, Luke, would you close out staff prayer with a bold, strong, evangelistic declaration of prayer to win the lost. And I'm like, did she just say my name? Like, did she just call on me? And I was like, oh no. Like, what am I gonna, and and my heart started beating fast. I started getting nervous. I I just like, I was like, yeah, yes. And so I I went into prayer. I don't even know what I prayed, but I know it was really bad because I looked at my friends afterwards and they're like, dang man, like, wow, pay attention next time. And then I left there and I was so nervous. Like I went to my office and I thought, I can't communicate without notes. 
if, I don't, if I'm not prepared and I don't have in front of me what I'm gonna say, I can't do it. And if I can't do it, how am I gonna be a pastor? Because I know I'm gonna be called on to do it. And then all of a sudden this anxiety, I'm sitting in my office, I'm out of staff prayer, but I'm still sweating, I'm still nervous, my palms are still sweaty, my heart's still beating, and then on Thursday, I'm thinking about staff prayer on Tuesday. And I'm like, what if, what if she calls on me in staff prayer again? I gotta be ready, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna be prepared. I'm gonna rehearse the prayer right now, okay? I know how I'm gonna pray, but what if that's not the topic she wants me to pray about? Then I'm not prepared again. And if I'm not prepared again, I'm gonna totally mess the thing up again. And if I mess it up again, I'm gonna humiliate myself in front of everybody else. And I, this anxiety wells up again within me on something that hasn't even happened and probably won't happen again. That's the difference in a moment of anxiety that becomes generalized into every area of my life. It becomes a moment of anxiety that then pours into my house, pours into my kids, pours into my family, pours into my work life, pours into my career to the point where I am just riddled with anxiety. That is general anxiety disorder. Now, here's what I want to do. And I'll tell you how I walked through that season personally. I'll illustrate it for you uh, later. But here's, here's something I want to align for you straight out of the gate. Because if you've been in church before, and maybe you have mentioned that you battle anxiety, um, one of the most well-meaning and just wrong go-tos for people is Philippians 4, 6, where the Bible says don't be anxious. So you shouldn't be anxious. You just turn it off, right? Stop being anxious, right? And it, it is, it's almost like in the worst sense, just spiritual gaslighting. Like, oh, no, no, your, your emotions don't matter. Bible says you shouldn't be anxious. You should be able to deal with that and fix it, right? Here's what I want to do, and this is where theology and context becomes extremely important for our study in mental health. I'm going to walk you through multiple times where that word appears, and I want you to hear, it is a Greek word, merim now. Okay, so the word in Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious. You can circle it in your Bible. It's the Greek word merim now. It's a Greek verb that is used positively and negatively throughout Scripture. I'll read them to you. Philippians 4, 6, this is the negative sense. Do not be anxious, merim now. That is to say, do not have the wrong or bad anxiety about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Okay, so they're right, right? Bible says you should not be anxious about anything. That's a negative anxiety. You shouldn't be anxious. Here's the challenge in Philippians 2, two chapters earlier, same letter. Here's what Paul says, talking about Timothy. For I have no one like him. He is complimenting Timothy to the church in Philippi. He's saying, I don't have anybody like him who will be genuinely concerned Merim now, same Greek word. Other translations will translate that, who has anxieties for your welfare. In other words, he's saying, Timothy has an anxiety for you that's really, really, really good. If I'm preaching to myself, I'm saying, Luke, taking anxiety from an impromptu moment in prayer and running it through your entire life is not good. Having anxiety for you and worry for you and prayer for you and righteous anxiety that you would follow Jesus and you would worship Jesus and you would walk with him and your life and your marriage and your children would glorify him, that's a good anxiety. That should boil up in me and it should create something in me the way it does for you with your children. Here's another example of it being used positively. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty eight. And apart from other things, there is daily pressure on me 
of my anxieties. Merim now for all the churches. Again, Paul is saying, I have this anxiety for the churches that they wouldn't be led astray, they wouldn't be divided, they wouldn't follow false teaching, that they wouldn't have people in there that would, that would cause chaos and corruption. In other words, he's saying, I have this anxiety, this positive, good anxiety for the churches. Here's Jesus using it in a negative sense. And which of you, by being Merim now, anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious. Don't have merim now for, and he gives these examples. Therefore, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat, what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? And he lists these materialistic, worldly examples, and he equates them to the Gentiles. He says, for the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be merim now about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be merim now anxious for itself, sufficient for the day, is its own trouble. Here's Paul again using the exact same word. I want you to see this, okay? Using the same word in a positive sense and a negative sense in the exact same passage and conversation. He says, I want you to be free from anxieties. Merim now, negative sense. There's a negative and a positive tense on Greek words in the Greek. This is a negative sense. I don't want you to have negative anxieties. I want you to be free from them. I want you free from negative anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious. This is a positive phrase of Merim now. Anxious about the things of the Lord. That's a good anxiety. Having a, a pulse within you that rises up because you want to glorify Jesus and avoid sin and walk with him and honor what the Holy Spirit's prompting you to do is a good anxiety. So Paul is saying, be anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. Negative sense, but the married man is anxious about worldly things. And over and over and over, Paul goes through, we can read the rest, if you, can, you can read it on your own through the sermon notes in the app. He goes through over and over and over. He will use anxiety or anxiousness positively and he will use it negatively in the exact same passage. Here it is positively again, 1 Corinthians 12, 25. There may be no divisions in the body. This is talking about how we should care for one another. This is why it's good to be in a group. You're in a group with people who are anxious for you. They're worried about you in a positive way. They care about your soul. They care about your growth. Listen, he says that there may be no divisions in the body, but that the members may have the same, it's the Greek word merim now, may have the same care for one another. He, he translates it to care here. In other words, anxiety is not the problem. The wrong anxiety is the problem. Look, I'll give you another example. For me, this is a good anxiety. 
I was doing some sermon prep a number of years ago, and I was, I was trying to find like this oil painting of Adam and Eve. I thought there was, there was an oil painting done of it at one point. And so I Googled Adam and Eve. There's children in here, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna talk in code, right? But I did not know that Adam and Eve is the largest adult store online. Had no clue. Clicked images. My computer showed up. I'm expecting, look, this is not how sermon prep usually goes. I'm like, I'm trying to, and it pops up, and I see all these images, and I'm like, instantly, what happened? My heart rate skyrockets. I get sweaty. I'm nervous. My mouth gets dry. I slam my laptop shut. I'm like, oh, great. IT is going to see my internet history, and I'm going to be in trouble. Like, what, what if my wife sees this? And, and I, I called Anna. I was like, Anna, listen, I want to tell you something. I was sermon prepping. Yeah, right, you were. I was sermon prepping, and I Googled this, and here's what, listen, that's a good anxiety. Fellas, you want that anxiety. You want sin to jump in front of your face and your pulse to start beating, your brow to start sweating, and you to start running from it. Like, that's what Paul's saying. We have to quit characterizing every anxiety as bad anxiety. I want you to have that. I have that anxiety for you. I long for you to be free from that stuff. I want you to have the deepest anxieties and convictions for Jesus, right? It's the wrong anxiety that's the problem. So what do we do with the wrong anxiety? That's the question. What do we do when it becomes every area of our life and it begins to impact our family, our children, our marriage, our, our everything that's going on? How do we handle it? I will tell you this. I don't know that there is a passage of Scripture that more clearly and beautifully addresses this, like the whole passage in Philippians chapter four. Um, I think Paul just nails it. So let's read it. Philippians four, five through seven. Great passage to memorize, by the way. We should do that. We should have a memory verse for each one of these sermons that we walk through. Uh, consider this one it. Philippians four, five through seven. Here it is. Let your reasonableness what are we missing when anxiety goes from a moment to every area of our life? We are missing a sense of reasonableness. Listen, this is the goal. The goal is not to rid every sort, every expression of anxiety. I want you to have righteous anxieties. The goal is that we would walk in a continual reasonableness. Listen to what Paul says. Let your reasonableness. Let's say it out loud together. Let your reasonableness. We have got to be reasonable with our anxiety. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Here you go. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. There's the three. Prayer, supplication, thanksgiving. How do I get back to reasonableness and overcome the wrong anxieties? Prayer, supplication, thanksgiving. Paul tells us very clearly, let your requests be, known, be made known to God. Verse seven, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your, gosh, isn't that what we want? Isn't that what we're after? 
We're saying anxiety has totally made me unreasonable. It's robbed me of what used to make sense and not make sense to where now I'm level 10 all the time. I want to get back to reasonableness. How do we get back to reasonableness? Prayer, supplication, and thanksgiving. And what will happen when we do that? We're gonna have peace and our minds are going to come back. Our minds are going to be protected. In other words, anxiety, I've been saying this, is not the problem. Reasonableness is the problem. And let me just say this. Like if you're, if you're with somebody, if, you're, if your spouse or you're walking with a friend who has anxiety and that rears up and flares up and everything else, the answer is not to say you're being unreasonable. <laughs> that's, not, that's the goal. Listen, the goal is to get back to reasonableness. But the answer in that moment is not, you're being unreasonable. The answer in that moment, Paul gives it to us. Prayer, supplication, thanksgiving. I'll illustrate it for you. Anna comes to me. Luke, I'm nervous about Ezra's upcoming doctor's appointment. Come here, let's pray. Lay my hands on our shoulders and say, come Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, come. Bring peace to us right now. That's encounter God. That's prayer. Supplication. Lord, we pray over this coming appointment. We pray that you'd give peace. We pray that you would heal. We pray that your grace would be there and that you would move miraculously. Thanksgiving. Lord, thank you for Ezra. Thank you that we have him to hold him, that he is healthy and whole. Would you help us to trust you now? In Jesus' name, amen to reasonableness. All of a sudden, it works every time. Our home, we become reasonable. We, be, we, we come down off the ledge. I'll give you the other scenario. Guilty of both. Nobody said I was a perfect husband, right? Anna comes to me and she says, I'm nervous about Ezra's upcoming doctor's appointment. And I say, quit Googling. Google's gonna drive you nuts every time you do it. Like, no wonder you're anxious. You have Alexa telling, Alexa ain't no MD. Alexa does not know what's going on. Don't ask Alexa. Don't Google it. I've told you a thousand times we're going to be fine. You're being unreasonable. <laughs> you can guess how well that works out, right? You can guess how many apologies I have to offer after that. See this, right? We want to get to reasonableness, but don't diagnose everybody as being unreasonable. Go through prayer, supplication, and thanksgiving. Okay, here's uh, really quick, the report from the annual Health and Mind Study, um, which is the largest report done on college students across the country. It is a web-based survey taken by 96,000 U.S. students across 133 campuses during the 21-22 academic school year. It found that 44% of students reported symptoms of depression, 37% reported anxiety disorders, and 15% reported having seriously considered suicide the past year, which is the highest record rates in the history of the 15-year survey. Listen to me, if, if you don't think this is a problem, you're unreasonable. You're, you're not listening. You're not opening your eyes. You're not understanding what's going on with everything and everyone else around you. So we have 
to address it. Here's how, I say this all the time, a sermon on Sunday is worth nothing on Monday if you don't walk away with anything. You've got to have something to walk away with. So here's what we're going to do. We know what we want to do, right? Paul makes it very clear. We want to get back to reasonableness. We get back to reasonableness through prayer, through supplication, through thanksgiving. So here's what we're going to do. We are going to encounter God through prayer. We are going to depend on God through supplication. And we're going to thank God through gratitude. I love, I love what God says. I love, you want me to say it again? I'll say it again. We're going to encounter God through prayer. We're going to depend on God through supplication. We're going to thank God through gratitude. It's Philippians 4, 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but by everything, through prayer, supplication, and thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the God who gives peace will calm your hearts and minds in Lord Christ Jesus, whatever translation you memorized it in. But here's, here's what I love about this. The word used for prayer, we're three weeks off of this season where we talked about prayer being separate from asking. How does Paul phrase prayer? He uses the Greek word that means to encounter God, the experience of encountering God. Sometimes it's used for synagogue and place of worship. Other times, Jesus, Luke 6, 12, says, I am going to go and pray, and he goes away to encounter God alone. It is a word that does not mean asking. It means encountering. In other words, how, what's our first step when our anxiety skyrockets? Here's what I do. I just, I just showed it to you. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. I'm nervous. I'm worried. I don't know what to say. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. And then I finish that conversation with this. Jesus, I hear you saying to me, come, Holy Spirit. Jesus, I hear you saying to me, I need to get back to reasonableness, that I still battle with a wound from the past in staff prayer, and I need to come to a place where I'm encountering you, where I'm depending on you, and where I'm living a life of gratitude. Come, Holy Spirit, come, right? That's prayer. Supplication is a Greek word that means ask the one who is dependent. In other words, what it means is asking the right person. It does not mean take your anxieties and ask everyone. Ask Alexa, ask Google, ask your friends, ask Instagram, ask. No, it is a word that is dependent on the person being asked. So present your supplications to God. Very specific request. I ask God to help me with it, and then Thanksgiving I walk in gratitude. Okay, let's rip through all of them. Number one, encounter God through prayer. We've talked about this over and over. The American Journal of Psychiatrics says the number one thing you can do for anxiety is meditate. I've got great news for you. Over 10 times throughout the Psalms, David calls prayer meditation. Meditation is supernatural. Meditation is prayer. If we're, it, meditation is prayer on steroids, right? We're just, we are, we are wrapped up in it. We're meeting with God. We can call it meditation. We can call it prayer. You can call it whatever you want. It is encountering God in a space that calms you. Psalm 1, 1 through 2, oh, the joys of those who do not follow the advice of the wicked or stand around with sinners or join in with mockers, but they delight in the Lord, meditating on him day and night. I have, um, so on Tuesdays, I'm not in the office. I like to work remote. I have to do deep study and work on things, and I just can't get 
four to five hour blocks of, of really deep study in our offices. Doesn't happen. So I'll usually work at home unless my kids are at home. Then I go to a coffee shop. And I don't mind the activity of a coffee shop if I have my, my AirPods. Those things are like, I don't know what's going on with those. Anybody else? You put them on and it's like the entire universe shuts down. Like they, Apple's so cute. Apple even has a noise. Like you put them on, it's like, ding, shh. Like it just shuts down. It's probably EMFs frying my brain, right? I, I get that. But something happens where it just shuts everything off. And I can be in the busiest, craziest coffee shop ever and be reading about psychology and theology because I had a space that went silent of everything around me and gave me the ability to focus and calm. That is the word for prayer. When Paul says, how do we get back to reasonableness in our battle of anxiety, we have to be able to retreat our brains to a space that brings, what did he say? Peace that transcends all understanding. I have to stop and pray. One of my phrases with Canaan when he elevates, can we pray about this? It's hard for him to argue with me and pray at the same time. Can we stop and pray? You go, I go. Let's just pray, and it brings a calming. Anxiety is your body on fire. That's why you sweat most of the time. One of the most common things, you start sweating, you start elevating, your skin turns red, you, you, you begin to boil up inside, and you've, if you've ever battled this, you can feel it. It just rises in you. Prayer is the calming. Prayer is the peace. Prayer is the thing that cools you down. What do we talk about next? He says, depend on God through supplication. We ask God, the only one who can do something about it. I love other uses of this word. Philippians 1.4, whenever I pray, I make my requests for you all with joy. Hebrews 5.7, this is Jesus. While Jesus was here on the earth, he offered prayers and pleadings with loud cries and tears to the one who could rescue him from death. And God heard his prayers because of his deep reverence for God. Here it is again, 1 Peter 5, 7. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. In other words, reasonableness, getting back to reasonableness with anxiety is asking God for help. I'll, I'll tell you, I, my wife asks me questions I, is impossible for me to know the answer to. Anybody else? I'm talking like the most random, she'll be like, hey Luke, why is the overpass closed? I literally, you know what I started doing? I learned this from Roger. I started making stuff up. I just totally lie. She's like, hey Luke, why is the overpass closed? I was like, oh, you didn't hear? On the news, there was this 44 mile per hour gust of wind that came from the bottom, bounced off the road, and shot up. And when it shot up, it jolted the anchor bolts in the bridge, making it completely unsafe, shut it down. They're probably gonna have to tear it down and rebuild it. She's, she is like, at this point. The other day, no lie, she asked me. She says, okay, why is it raining outside and my Apple app, weather app, tells me it's not raining? I said, oh, you didn't know? Like, I saw an article that came out about this. Apple's trying to teach you how to manifest your own reality. So what they want you to do 
is they want you to see that there's no rain, and then they want you to believe that there's no rain, and then they want you to ask the universe for no rain, and then when you go out, the universe is going to listen to you, and it's going to turn the rain off. <laughs> right? And then it usually, the conversation usually goes like this. She'll usually say something like, really? I'm just, I'm curious. I just want to know. And my response always is, well, then ask somebody who knows. You want to call TxDOT? Ask them why the overpass is closed? Let's do it. I'm all for it. You want to read Steve Jobs' biography and find out why the Apple app is? I, like, I don't know. Let's ask somebody who knows. This is what Paul is saying. And hear me, everyone who battles with anxiety, I've done the same thing. If you battle with anxiety, asking the wrong people the wrong questions only elevates the problem. It only creates more chaos because we live in an unreasonable world with unreasonable people and unreasonable devices that listen to every unreasonable thing that we say. So if we turn to the world with all of our requests and all of our asks and make them to them, what's going to happen? We're going to live in a constant loop of anxiety. Why? Because culture's losing its mind. People are losing their minds. Why? Because we have allowed this anxiety to boil up and we turn to 60-second reels to solve all of our problems. Nothing drives me, I call it Instagram theology. Hey, let me fix all your problems in 60 seconds. Here we go, 57, 56, 55. And it's just some, based on some random goofball that then, I better stop. But I'm just telling you, there are complex things that have complex answers, and there is one who holds all the answers, yet in our heightenedness of anxiety, we start asking everybody but him. And yet, what does Paul say gets us back to reasonableness? Prayer, encountering God, asking, depending on God, and then I love this one, thanksgiving. This is the one, I have a mentor who says they, gratitude's the secret sauce. Like, this is the one that changes things. Lack, of, I'll tell you this, lack of gratitude is the first step towards idolatry. Hear me, Romans 1, 21. Listen to this. Yes, this is Paul speaking of sinful people. Wrap your heart around this. Yes, they knew God. Who is that? That's us. That's not them, right? We can't blame them, they's, and everything else. That's, that's us, right? Yet they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God and even give him thanks. What did they quit doing? They quit worshiping, and they quit being thankful. They knew God, but they quit two things, worship and gratitude. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. You wanna lose your mind, lose your worship, and lose your gratitude. You wanna absolutely lose your mind, lose your worship, and lose your gratitude. It's exactly what happened here. He said they knew God, but they quit worshiping, and they quit being grateful. And when they quit worshiping, and they quit being grateful, they started thinking of themselves, and thinking of random crazy thoughts, and the next thing you know, their minds are dark and confused. Gratitude re-centers us on the Lord. I'll tell you how this works. First of all, let me read 1 Thessalonians 5.18. Paul tells us, give thanks in all 
circumstances. I pray two prayers every day. Morning, prayer of submission, evening, prayer of gratitude. In the morning, I say, Lord, let my eyes only look at things of you, my ears only listen to things of you, my mouth only speak things that honor you, my heart only long for things that honor you, my hands only touch things that honor you, my feet only go places that honor you. Let me be a living sacrifice for you today. Out the door we go, go, come back. Home's crazy, put the kids to bed. Everything's done, Ann and I decide it's bedtime before I go to bed. Say, Jesus, thank you for, and I just go. Thank you that I'm breathing air today. Thank you that my four children are sleeping at home in their beds today. They're sleeping sweet and peacefully. Thank you for my wife. Thank you that we just had 15 minutes to connect and talk. Thank you, Lord, for dinner that was in our pantry that we had the means to provide for. Thank you. Just go into gratitude. Start with submission. End with gratitude. Gratitude is what recenters us. Here's how this looks. My, my life right now is absolute chaos. I'm just telling I have four children, two who are, not, who are not neurotypical, one who has all kinds of medical needs right now, and it's just nuts. I'll give you like the perfect example. Friday at 1.40, we have an appointment with an orthopedic surgeon for Ezra. Now, we've been praying for months, right? I'm talking months. We were at the pediatrician's office. They did an exam, checked his legs. There's a weird crease over his knees, and, and she was concerned about the crease, and we started feeling like, I don't think we feel kneecaps. She's like, yeah, I don't think there's any kneecaps in there as well. You need a referral to an orthopedic surgeon. You need this looked at. So we get this referral. They're two months out on scheduling. I spent two months worried praying, anxious, like waking up, like, is he not going to be able to walk? Is he, how is he going to walk? If he tries to walk, is his leg going to buckle? How are they going to put a kneecap in there? He doesn't have a kneecap. Like, what do you do with that? You take a piece out of his head and put it in his knee. I don't, I don't know. Like, what are they going to do? So we get to the orthopedic surgeon. We walk into the room after two months of anxiousness and praying and worry, and we, we walk into that room, and he's got this smirk on his face. I was already like, man, I love him and hate him already. He's got this little smirk on his face, and he sits down, and he says, tell me, tell me why we're here again? And we're like, well, kneecaps, patellas. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I saw that. He's like, okay. He's like, well, um, I've got news for you. Ezra doesn't have kneecaps. I was like, no, no, are you serious? And he said, here's the good news. Children form kneecaps from three to five years old. (laughs) I was like, wait, what? And he's like, I, I was like, are you like, wait? And he, he literally turns his, I told you, you guys are a little snarky, right? I, I really like him. He turns his monitor. He's like, here, let's just ask Dr. Google. Turns the stinking computer to me. Pulls up Google. Searches, when do kids develop kneecaps? It says, children most often have cartilage until three to five years old when it calcifies into bone and it becomes a kneecap. And he's like, there you go. Should ask Google. No, don't do that. I was like, golly, and we left there, and I was like, what is wrong with, like, I was so anxious and worried, the wrong kind of worry, about, but that is, that is our life in a nutshell, and that is the, the chaos of every single moment, yet what happens when Anna pulls up Facebook group, she's in a Down Syndrome Facebook group, and she sees that a kid that was born at the same time with Down Syndrome as Ezra was diagnosed with leukemia and is hooked up onto all of these things and is very frail and sick and facing death. We're saying to ourselves, it's not so bad going to a knee appointment doctor, right? It's not so bad going to the orthopedic surgeon and looking foolish. It could be worse. We find something to be grateful for, and that gratitude reorients our anxiety. What happens when we get on Facebook and we see 
family friends of ours who had their first Christmas in years without a kid at home because they're empty nesters now, and there's this tear-filled post of like, man, I miss the days when my kids are home. Don't take it for granted. You'll miss it too. And my kids are home for 18 days on Christmas break. It's not so bad anymore. I'm not filled with anxiety about it anymore, right? Or what about when I remember us being after a, a, an hour after Ezra was born, being rushed by ambulance downtown for Ezra to have a life-threatening surgery because he didn't have a hole in his bottom, and we were worried with, if it wasn't done within 24 hours, it was fatal, and all of a sudden, uh, now I'm waking up at 2 o'clock in the morning changing a poopy diaper. Ain't that bad? It ain't that bad because his life was on. But see, here's what happens. You lose that gratitude. You lose the reasonableness and your gratitude no longer redirects you to the goodness of God, your lack of gratitude points to you. And what happens with us? We can be pretty unreasonable. We can be pretty self-centered. We can be pretty selfish. So how do we combat anxiety theologically? The goal is reasonableness. I want to just be reasonable. How do I get there? I am going to encounter God. Come Holy Spirit. Meet me. I am going to depend on God. God, right now I am nervous and worried or anxious about this. And then I'm going to thank him. Lord, thank you that it could be far worse. But you've been so good. And I'm going to be grateful for you even when it hurts, even when it's painful, even when it's confusing, even when I don't know what's next. I know it could be worse. And then I will begin to experience the peace that transcends all understanding and my heart and mind will be guided or guarded in Christ Jesus.